It's weird though, because he tells the whole story and then he like euphemistically, and they all became birds. You know, <laughs> it's just like, I don't know what to do with that, but it does feel like this, this like gentling over the, the harshness of the world. That, that Greg is like the sort of Girardian reading a myth, whereas that the transformations are covering real, real violence. For the myths to be useful, our own violence can't be on full display in them. For them to be socially useful, we need to obscure our own violence to a degree. Welcome to the Key to All Mythologies podcast, a celebration of the practices of slow reading and serious conversation among friends. On this episode, we are discussing Book 13 of Ovid's Metamorphoses. Book 13 begins with the argument between the clever and duplicitous wordsmith Ulysses and the plain-smoking, perhaps dim-witted, Ajax over whom should inherit the fabled armor of Achilles, now that he is dead. Ulysses wins the argument, and his long speech reminds us that much of Ovid's poem has been made up of various styles of monologue. This book is no exception. Heroes, queens, and mythical beasts all have their own monologues in Book 13, none more interesting than the song of Polyphemus as he attempts to win the heart of the sea nymph Galatea. Polyphemus, you'll recall, features as the monstrous cannibal cyclops in Homer's Odyssey and as a pathetic, mutilated giant in Virgil's Aeneid. Mutilated, that is, by Ulysses. Polyphemus is the most vivid example of Ovid's very different uses of narrative, monsters, gods, and morality from his epic predecessors, Homer and Virgil. And the interplay of the three epics is at its densest and most complex in Book 13. Are the stories in Ovid moral parables? Do his sympathies lie with epic heroes or with the monsters they destroy? How much power does Ovid grant human speech to transform the world? And if speech has such power, are the poets using it for good or evil? How would we even know the difference? And now, here is Alex with the opening question. All right. At the beginning of Book 13, Ovid's Metamorphoses, Ulysses and Ajax argue against each other to see who will... Uh, win the armor of Achilles after Achilles has been killed. And the thought that I had about this scene of two ancient Greeks arguing against each other for material gain, it seems like exactly the sort of thing that Plato talks about in his dialogues, that once a civilization reaches a period of luxury, you'll have lawsuits being conducted all the time. It's a it's a symptom of a decaying state. But one of the tactics that that Ulysses uses, and this is on 311, Ulysses is talking about Achilles, who was disguised by his mother in an attempt to save him from going on on the uh, Trojan campaign. So Ulysses found out that Achilles was in disguise and he gets Achilles to go on the voyage. Ulysses says, it was my hand that sent a brave man forward to his brave deeds. Therefore, his works are mine. So Ulysses is claiming that he's sort of the efficient cause to the Greeks winning this whole war. <laughs> so wh what do you make of uh, Ulysses' argument tactics? And do you agree with me that it seems like a, a characteristic Greek scene that Ovid's painting for us? 
Yeah, I thought that was an incredible, <laughs> an incredible claim. He's, he essentially says anything that any, any he takes credit for any of the deeds of the great warriors if he was the one who who maneuvered them into battle. Right? It's an it's a yeah, it's an incredible, an incredible, an incredible claim in a way. And he also he also contradicts something he said just before, where he said uh, because Ajax tries to claim some sort of glory for himself based on his lineage and. Odysseus says the deeds of our ancestors, you know, bring no glory to us. It's our own deeds that bring us glory. But then immediately after that, he says, I, I claim some of the glory for Achilles' deeds because I was the one who roused him to fight. He's very tricky, the whole speech, in a, in a very Odyssean way. I guess I'm, yeah, I mean, it seems sort of typically Greek in a way. I, it's, in, it's just, in terms of the composition of the metamorphosis, it's, it's interesting that you get so little, Ovid is just so much more interested in the speeches than the fighting like the whole Trojan war takes place in like three or four sentences, but you get pages and pages of, of rhetoric. We get that, you know, later on, we get the great, that great monologue from Polyphemus as well. So Odysseus's foil and many, so many ways. It does seem like that we're supposed to read this as sophistry in some way. Ovid has a, a typically Roman view of the Greeks, which is sort of begrudging admiration, but he also likes to take a little jab when he can. But yeah, I think it's definitely sophistry. But I think this whole book 13 is just filled with speech after speech after speech. There's a, a real concerted turn. There, were, there have been plenty of speeches up to this point, but there's a real focus on the speeches here, um, which perhaps makes sense as we're moving more obviously into the political realm. Yeah, the speech of Polyphemus is significantly longer than the entire, than all the events of the Aeneid. A lot of time is devoted to Ulysses' monologue. That's probably, that's the longest monologue we've had, I think, right? And yeah, I, certainly there's some sophistry there. I pointed out before the self-contradiction. There's some places where he does that kind of thing. But what's the, why well, is there like a more serious point being made, you know? I mean, some of those, some of those lines are so, so he says at the, right at the end of his speech, he is saying, Ajax only knows how to fight. And he says, even Menelaus, ready men, my equals on any battlefield, but less in council. Your arm is useful in the wars. Your wits need mine to guide them. You are strong and brainless. I think about the future. You can fight. We set the time for fighting, Agamemnon and I, Ulysses. Only in the body are you worth anything, but I have mind, sense, and intelligence. As a ship's captain is better than a rower, as a leader is greater than his soldier, so do I outrank you, Ajax. In my makeup, knowledge governs brute force, and therein lies my talent. And it could just be a piece of, you know, sophisticated rhetoric. He's appealing to Agamemnon, who's ultimately going to make this decision. But there's like a more serious point about, you know, a more serious political point there. Well, we've talked about from the Iliad to the Odyssey to the Aeneid, we can see the increasing importance of strategy and sort of wit in battle, mm -hmm. right? So in the Achilles is kind of just like, or in the Iliad, right? People like Achilles are just showing up and just brute force. Forces of nature are just wreaking havoc. And then it gets sort of increasingly sophisticated as you go on. And, and so it does seem like there's a point being made about that, about how warfare is more, yeah, it's more tactical than mere force which mm -hmm. again doesn't seem novel to us but i'm willing to grant that there is this is a controversial point this is perhaps a controversial point at the time ovid's writing right the relation of force and stratagem and it's even still conceivably 
controversial today, right? Is it better to is it better to have a huge army or to have tacticians on your side? Yeah, because he's saying he's saying my kind of intellect is rarer and more valuable than even the greatest warrior. That would apply to Achilles too. Yeah, but the sort of so on the next page on 318 from where you read Adam, um, it says, so they were moved. What eloquence could do was evident. The eloquent man bore off the brave man's arms. And so there is like a little bit of irony in this, in that if wit is really so important as um, Ulysses says it is, then having weapons is not as important, right? Mm. The content, the contest was over the fighting man's tools and the man with eloquence, not the man, not the fighter, but the thinker, it takes the fighting tools. So there's, I think, some irony here. If wit was all that was required, then, then Ulysses wouldn't even need these weapons. But he just also, I mean, I think he implies that he also wants them because they're beautiful, right? The shield of Achilles, as we've talked about. I think there's a second level of irony, too, with the fact that Ovid is a poet, right? Like the, the conflict between humans and the gods really does seem to mirror Odysseus's speech. It's just now humans are triumphant when previously they lost, right? The gods were these powerful entities and humans in the whole were just more cunning or more clever or better at making things and the gods just punished through force and now unlike in the past Odysseus can make this argument and win I, th I think historically we've tied that to the development of poetry but now we have this poet I would say that the poem's pretty clearly sympathetic to Ajax I could be wrong about that but that that's striking considering that this is from a poet and not from a soldier that, that's that's strange to me well, I was thinking that the the claim, Ulysses' claim about being the efficient cause of Achilles fighting, you know, if you were to relate that to writing poetry, it becomes a very expansive claim about well, human, human behavior, right? What kind of efficient causes lie in the background of human behavior? There's something to do with, 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 with artifice too, right? Because it's all, it's all sort of turning around armor. But it's a special, like you were saying, Elijah, it's a special set of armor. It's a, an especially beautiful set of armor, especially notable. You know, the shield is, is this famously elaborate depiction of the entire world. And it's armor. Ulysses hides armor among Achilles' toys to rouse Achilles to war, right? So he sort of he claims himself as the cause there, but you could also think of the armor as the cause. I don't know. I'm just trying to think about it. I'm trying to relate... Because I think that there's a question about politics and then there's also a question about art there. Can I read the section where uh, Ulysses talks about the artistic merits of the shield? So this is line 285. Heavy they are, speaking of the shield, but I can bear them and I have sense enough to know their meaning, their full significance. Do you think that Thetis was so ambitious for her son that she would see this gift of heaven, this heavenly art worn by this lout? this stupid hulking soldier. Ajax knows nothing of the work of this shield and what to him are the swing of the Pleiades, the sea, the starry skies, the constellations, the scattered cities and Orion's sword. He is claiming arms beyond his power to value, right? So there's some notion here that they, the word value is really interesting to me there. There's some notion that as an, as an aesthetic object and as a source of knowledge, um, Ajax can't he's a good fighter but he can't use the shield and sword properly in that way 
right? And that Ulysses as a, a many faceted man, right? As somebody with wit and cleverness can access the shield and sword, their meaning in some way that Ajax can't. And who, who's to say whether it makes one a, a better warrior if uh, I have my shield and sword that are artistically beautiful and deeply significant and that makes me a better fighter than than someone who is just physically large wielding the same sword and shield i think it's hard to say but i i would not want to fight odysseus with his sword and shield the sword and shield of achilles i mean it's a fairly straightforward claim that that you have to be smart to appreciate beautiful objects right that's 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 what he's saying ajax is too dumb to appreciate what a magnificent object this shield is <laughs> sorry he thinks it's a shield but i understand that it's not a shield it's it's something else i'm th- yes i'm thinking about epic poems if the action of the epic poems had happened differently and odysseus had taken the armor of achilles back to his home and they were on display in his war room and someone asked Odysseus what's that beautiful shield there and Odysseus would tell the tale much better than Ajax if they went to Ajax's household what's that mm. that's the shield of Achilles <laughs> i got it from him after he died yeah let's eat <laughs> <laughs> do you guys remember like in the Iliad one of the strangest things to me was that the shield itself the the final like end of the shield is never it just never comes up again just it they spend all this time describing it and then its first appearance in the battlefield it's like radiating and you know bowls everyone over with its with its incredibleness but they just go you know it's never really brought up again it just kind of disappears from the story there seems to be something here about odysseus being the kind of like layered political sophisticated political creature who can appreciate all these all these nuances and somehow like the maybe this maybe it's a stretch but there's some maybe some relationship there to the poem the metamorphoses to like previous epic works right like in terms of its tradition its position in the in the tradition of epic poetry it's like i i Ovid recognize as people before me as the my, as my predecessors did not that the human drama the speeches of the human players are more interesting than the, than the fighting i mean i think about like herodotus seems to have understood that right he has a speech of pericles but but i think you're right about the epic tradition but i'm also just thinking about right what is the end of ajax so ajax is this badass fighter that nobody can conquer and then using words right odysseus makes him first so angry and then so sorrowful that he takes his own life Right, so the, there's a, a decisive defeat of um, mm-hmm. of words, the power of language over the power of physical force. Um, I mean, not not unlike Polyphemus and Odysseus in the Odyssey, right? And Ajax, right, so clumsy with language, says no man but Ajax will ever conquer Ajax. And so Ajax even fails to recognize that it's really Odysseus who, who has conquered him through the power of language. Yeah. And that's good. And then he becomes a word <laughs> in death. Yeah, that's right. 
So Ajax says, this is my own, snatching the sword. This is my own, most certainly, or does Ulysses claim it? This I must use against myself. The sword so often red with Trojan blood will redden now with its masters, and no man but Ajax will ever conquer Ajax. So he claims ownership of the sword in, in some way. Sorry, I don't know where I'm going with this. I'll pause there. Well, I think that's that's further accentuated by the fact that Ovid's rewritten, at least some of the tradition, has this whole thing where after the he loses the, the armor, he has that freaky dream where he imagines the sheep are Greek soldiers. I forget who makes him have the dream. And then he goes and slaughters all the sheep. And then he wakes up and realizes that they're sheep and not the Greek soldiers. But out of shame, he kills himself anyways. And removing that. Where, where is that version found? Do you know, Greg? Uh, you know, I don't know. I think it's, uh-huh. is that, it might be in Euripides. Um, I think it, yeah, I think if it's, it's the plot of the Ajax. Um, so. But removing um, that, you were saying. Yeah. So basically, but the, so Ovid removes that, which just literally makes it, he's so ashamed from being defeated verbally. Like it, he takes away the traditions I don't know, it's hard to say if it's unequivocal explanation of the story, but it, it just doubly, what he leaves out doubly emphasizes that it's Odysseus who's, who's wrought this upon him. Right. So also, I think sometimes he wins it through a wrestling bout. And here it's just straight based on the speeches. So in some ways, Ajax is completely set up to fail. Right. No one would have, no one would have imagined beforehand that he could defeat Odysseus in a purely rhetorical contest. It's farcical, right? If, if that's the contest. But I think in the Iliad, there's pretext for, because Ajax and Odysseus wrestle not for the armor of Achilles, but during the funeral games of Patroclus. And there, I, th- I can't remember who wins, but it's some, based on some kind of like trick throw Odysseus does. I think Odysseus wins. I don't remember. But it's a very similar, like there, there's this long tradition of they have a contest yeah. and Odysseus wins. Here, the contest is just stripped away. The dream is stripped away. He's just scathed. Which we don't have to do this now, but at some point we should talk about the speech of Polyphemus, which besides just being one of the more charming things in the whole book so far, I mean, I just was like, I was at the dentist's office reading this, like, yeah. you know, waiting in the chair for them to come clean my teeth or whatever. And I was just like smiling and laughing out loud. There was something so charming and interesting about the whole Polyphemus trying to comb his hair. So he looks less ugly to woo this woman and then giving a speech about all the things she would have if he, if he, if she became his wife, but Polyphemus gives a speech that fails, right? He tries to use language uh, unsuccessfully. So we don't have to necessarily go there, but at some point I'd like to talk about that moment. So that one's interesting. Too. Uh, let's go there. So that one's interesting too, because uh, the way I read it, it seems like Polyphemus is being um, reimagined in the rustic poet tradition. Like I was thinking a lot of the eclogues with, with Polyphemus as this kind of, you know, itinerant poet who's too dirty to woo women, but it was that was one of the funniest and most shocking things I've seen in this book. Structurally, it's very strange in terms of the in terms of the book, right? Because it's like you get the Ajax and Ulysses, and then there's the Aeneid, and it's like, okay, now we're talking about the Aeneid, and you've it's clearly you know you've you've moved clearly to the next step in the tradition, and then all of a sudden it's like actually we're going to talk about Scylla and Charybdis, mm-hmm. and then Polyphemus Polyphemus is going to become this sort of like you know uh, hillbilly bard in the in the mountains, and I mean. I don't know how sympathetic the poem was to Ajax, but certainly it's like you are supposed to 
like Polyphemus, I think, you know. Well, right. And, and Polyphemus in the Odyssey is like supposed to be, I mean, one of the more fearsome creatures that Odysseus mm-hmm. deals with, you know, it's mm-hmm. one I've seen everyone remembers and here he's sort of defanged in a certain way. I mean, he still resorts to violence, but it's definitely a very different picture of him. I'm just yeah, gonna, but it's, oh, go ahead. it's just before we read it, I think it's really notable that what he does not do is chase her and try and rape her, right? He does yeah. try and woo her. He tries to improve his appearance and he tries to speak he tries to speak beautifully you know he tries to become the man that he imagined she would fall in love with and that is a you would never get apollo or jove doing anything like that you know that doesn't would not even occur to them yeah that's right well i'm just going to start i'm just going to read the moment where he's introduced and he's trying to fix his appearance just because it's a nice introduction and then maybe we can talk about what he's doing in his song right it's called the song not a speech at least according to our editor His name was Polyphemus, and you should have seen him, suddenly taking pains with his appearance, trying to cultivate the art of pleasing, using a rake to comb his shaggy shaggy mop, resorting to a sickle to trim his beard, using a pool for mirror to see his ugly features, making faces he thought would be more winsome, all his love for murder gone, and all his thirst for blood, and ships sailed in and out again in safety. Right, so you have this monstrous creature um, who's been terrifying, you know, the area around his islands and then all of a sudden he's just yeah has this to- has fallen in love it is just has this total uh i don't know yeah very winsome scene of him trying to fix his appearance i don't know what else to say about it i just thought it was very uh cinematic and and hilarious i remember thinking the same thing about the description of polyphemus in the odyssey when polyphemus comes back to his cave and puts his sheep in their pens and milks the sheep in his natural element it was uh, a description that made him seem less like a monster that's that's about to kill and eat some greek sailors but then he get he sets to uh killing and eating the greek sailors in the odyssey let me read the part of his speech where he tries to convince galatea that he's more good looking than she maybe first believed. This is like line 840 or so. So Polyphemus says, Galatea, lift up your shining head from the blue water. Now come and do not scorn my gifts. I know, surely I know myself. I saw me lately in a clear pool and liked myself. Just look how big I am. Jove up there in the sky. You always talk about some Jove or other who rules up there. He can't be any bigger. Plenty of hair gets in my eyes and shadows my shoulders like a grove. Don't think it ugly if my whole body is covered thick with bristles. A tree is ugly without its leaves, a horse ugly without a mane, and birds have feathers and sheep have wool, so beards and hair on the chest are the sign of a man. In the middle of my forehead I have one eye. So what? Does not the sun see all things here on earth from his high heaven, and the great sun has only one eye? Yeah, I mean, this is like, it's it's very poetic, right? He has all of these uh, metaphors and analogies comparing himself to nature. I mean, it's it's I'm actually thinking of like Frankenstein, right? The the creature in Frankenstein is convinced, like if I can get the power of speech, I can get these peasants to love me in the countryside. And he he practices, he reads Paradise Lost, he does all these things, and then he goes and gives his speech to the villagers, and of course they run away terrified and you know, throw rocks at him or whatever. But it's really it's interesting that you say that because it's like such a an old trope that human beings believe they have a monopoly on the power of reason but then they're consistently unable to see reason if the 
body enacting it is too ugly, right? That's <laughs> so, <laughs> just yeah. One well, is it is Philo? Who is the character in the Iliad, the ugly soldier who foments the rebellion? Orcides. Yeah. 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 I mean, he makes an appearance here. Yeah. I I wonder if I'd be really interested to know if this is one of the first times. Do you guys know of anything earlier than this where the poet goes to great pains to show that the ugly character actually, the, that the inside and outside don't match necessarily, if that makes sense? Because that's certainly a trope in the modern age, but... I think that it was a trope in the ancient age, but I think it was a lot of lost plays. So I know that the, sati- the satirical plays, the fourth of the tragedies had a lot of... I think he didn't invent the trope of, of Polyphemus being a comic character or anything like that. Um, so I think that was existing, but sure, like surely Ovid's spinning it in an interesting new way. It's just, it's so, it's so jarring here because you get the, you flash cut to the lives of Skill and Charybdis, which we're not even, care. I mean, even compared to Polyphemus were, you know, monstrous, barely living, you know, beings in the, in the Odyssey. They were almost just like natural forces that raged at you and didn't have any life and didn't, didn't have like inner lives or emotional lives or anything well, that's another inversion right she's beautiful from the waist up you yeah. know this monstrous woman whose whose lower half is entirely yipping dogs is is a catch apparently yeah. <laughs> in this early monster culture <laughs> yeah i wonder if there's anything that we could say about so one thing that's that's happening here so the gods are being excised much more thoroughly in this book than previous ones, right? And that goes along with, as Elijah was saying, we're moving into the political or moving into history. And they're really, I don't think, I was just looking back through book 10, but I don't think there are any direct interventions of the gods in this book at all, right? I guess Aurora is sort of a god. And Aurora and Jove do have a story here. I forgot about Aurora. But wonder if there's some way in which that kind of at least the like the occluding of divine activity goes along with the the increased like humanness of the monsters or something i think there's something to that adam and it also seems to me that prayers are being replaced by speeches prayers to the gods are being replaced by speeches to other people which is also again right we're we're moving from a religious world to a political world in the public public addresses and pleas rather than yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and and they have a similar function to prayers right polyphemus's song is essentially a prayer to galatea (laughs) a hymn in praise of galatea but but not and it is that but it's also um it's also uh, right it's a real request right pity me and listen i bow to you alone i who scorn jove his sky his thunderbolts i fear you only your anger is more deadly than the lightning and this I could endure with greater patience if only you scorn the others. But why, oh, why reject a Cyclops and fall in love with Asus? Prefer this Asus to my hugs and kisses, right? He's, uh, yeah, Galatea is essentially a goddess that, that Polyphemus is praying to, trying to seek some redress, trying to seek some favor. Did anyone think how the translator rendered the beginning of the song of Polyphemus sort of lends this character, this rustic, Oh, Galatea, he sang, whiter than privet, bloominger than the meadows, slenderer than the long alder tree, brighter than the glass. 
more capering than the tender kid and smoother than shells worn down by everlasting waves so a lot of a lot of bloominger and uh slenderer i love i love that he said she was more aggressive than a pregnant bear but uh that's romantic i'm gonna gonna start saying that to katie (laughs) yeah i think it's supposed to be yeah he's not um again if he's kind of a ulysses foil i think and he's obviously has much less of a command of the syntax and the grammar of the language than ulysses does he doesn't use any he doesn't use any of the kind of tricks that Ulysses uses. Of course, he also doesn't contradict himself. He's very, his heart is on his sleeve. And that's part of the charm too. I mean, like Ulysses, if we go back to Ulysses' speech, he, he compares his own hiding out from the war, the Trojan War to Achilles as if they're the same kind of thing. But of course, you know, Achilles is a child and his mother is preventing him from leaving. And obviously Ulysses is a full-grown man who is, trying to you like trying to feign madness to get out of fighting but he he just uses his ability to deploy language to kind of shuttle over that all that and obviously you're not getting you you don't you would not see polyphemus using that kind of a trick right so we might say something like at least just looking at book 13 right uh duplicitous speeches (laughs) get get the desired effects provided that the speech giver is skilled enough whereas sincere speeches don't Right. And then Polyphemus resorts to violence or tries to, right? He tries to kill Asus. It goes to Greg's idea that this whole thing is a meditation on lying. I mean, in light of that, should we look at Glaucus's speech where he, I mean, it's another speech we can think about how it works. Should I read the whole story of Glaucus or is that too much? It's like starts on page 335. So on 335, this story of Glaucus. So ended the story, and the Nereids went their way, swimming the peaceful waters. Scylla only, fearing the far deeps, came wandering, far off deeps, came wandering back to the shore. And there she strolled along, all naked over the thirsty sands, or growing weary, found some safe pool to swim in. But here came Glaucus, sounding his shell across the sea, a dweller new come to ocean. Change had come upon him, not so long since, near Anthedon in Ubea. He saw her and he loved her and he said whatever words might make her pause to listen. But she was frightened and fled and swift in her fear raced to the top of the mountain that hung over the shore. One sharp high peak whose shadow fell far over the water. Here she was safe and watched him, monster or god, wondering at his color, the hair that fell across his back and shoulders, the fish form fig leaf at his groin. So stopping it a second, right up to this point is very similar to the Polyphemus story. Right. He tries to say words. She doesn't buy him, runs away. He has something monstrous about him. He saw her, leaned on a nearby massive rock, called to her. Maiden, I am no freak, no savage beast. I am a sea god. Neither Proteus nor Triton nor Athamas, son, Palamon, Palamon. None of these has greater power than I. I was once mortal, but even then devoted to deep waters from which I earned my living. Thence I drew my nets. Or by the ocean side, I dangled my rod and line. I can recall a shore that bordered on green meadows, which no cattle, no sheep, no goats had ever grazed. No bees came there for honey and no garlands ever were gathered there, nor sickle plied. I first came there and dried my nets and lines and spread them along that bank, counting the fish I caught by luck or management or their own folly. It will sound to you, no doubt, like a fishy story, but why should I tell you lies? My catch on touching the grass began to stir, to turn, to swim, to jump on the land the way they did in the water. And as I stood in wonder, they slipped down into their native element and left me. 
I was a long time wondering, had some god done this, or was there magic in the grasses? I plucked a blade and chewed it, and its flavor had hardly touched my tongue when suddenly my heart within me trembled, and I felt an overwhelming longing. I must change my way of life. I could not stand against it. Farewell, O earth, I cried, farewell forever, and plunged into the sea, whose gods received me with every honor, and called on Oceanus and Tethys to dissolve my mortal nature. They purged me of it, first with magical singing nine times repeated, and then with river water come from a hundred streams, and I remember no more. When my sense returned, I knew I was a different kind of creature, body and spirit. I saw for the first time this beard, dark green, these locks that flow behind me over long waves, these shoulders and blue arms, these legs that trail into a fish-like end, and all of this of little good to me. Where is the prophet in being a sea god's sea god, if my Scylla cares not at all? There was more he would have spoken, but Scylla fled at once, and he in anger went to the marvelous palace of Circe, the daughter of the sun. Okay, so this story is going to continue in book 14, so we don't know how it's going to end, but it strikes me that he's essentially giving an account for his monstrous appearance, right? And one that he hopes will win Scylla over. So he's up to the same sort of thing that Polyphemus was trying, mainly trying to do in his speech. Well, not mainly, but at least partially trying to do in his speech. So uh, I guess I'll go ahead, Adam. Well, he's also saying I'm not a monster, right? Like I'm, I look like a monster, but I was once a man and I still am. My essence is still human essence, even though I've been changed to a monstrous appearance. I mean, using language is part of that. Like a lot of these transformations in previous books, the transformed being couldn't, could no longer speak. That was an important part of it. Well, and when we humans, right, when we feel a, a gap between us and another person, right, our typical go-to is language, right? If I could explain the situation, if you think about estranged lovers or whatever, right, I could explain the situation and you understood this perceived gap would disappear but Ovid is really in in both this story and the polyphemus story he's really sketching out a very common scenario where this sort of best laid plans right these speakers give this heartfelt speech that that's really giving the whole story as best they can and then it falls short right it doesn't obtain so as we, I mean, to maybe broaden it out a little bit, right, as we see speech becoming increasingly important, we also see futility isn't the right word, but the, the power of speech is not, already we see that achieving things via speech is very difficult and, and not at all a guaranteed success. And I do think this is present in earlier books of Ovid, of the Metamorphoses, but it seems like he's really... He starts with this long story, right? Ajax speech fails, Polyphemus's fails, at least up to this point, um, this speech of Glaucus fails. We can maybe talk about other speeches in here, but we start out with an exemplar of, a, of only the speech of Odysseus, right? Stands alone as one that successfully obtained the desired object. Right, so the difference, the difference is in the merit of the speaker, Odysseus's a legendary dissembler and legendary in his wiliness and his speech in Ovid exhibits some sophistry argumentation that would convince uh, an uneducated person, I suppose. And then the object for Polyphemus and Glaucus is uh, a, a woman, a, a love interest 
And that is different from the legendary armor of Achilles. Are you saying that it would somehow be worse to lie in pursuit of a, a love interest than in pursuit of a political objective? I think Ulysses just has, he has more points to make in his speech since he's talking about a war that's been going on for nine years. And I'm not exactly sure how long this attraction between the lovers and beloved in the later part of the book has been going on. So Polyphemus just doesn't have enough things to say to convince maybe. Whereas Ulysses says, takes credit for bringing Achilles, takes credit for convincing someone to do the sacrifice so that the winds will stop blowing. And then he takes credit for turning the Greeks when they were going to leave at Agamemnon's command. He takes credit for rousing the Greeks back to back to business. So Odysseus, through his cunning, he takes credit for the whole effort being successful. Well, and we should look at the sacrifice of Polyxena, right? So she gives a speech too, right? As they're getting ready to sacrifice her. And then as she ended her speech, right? The tears were theirs, not hers. Even the priest wept and unwilling drove the weapons home weapon home and as she fell she kept her look of courage and even in her falling she remembered to keep her body covered to guard the honor of modesty right so she gives this speech and it sort of makes them regret what they're doing and maybe like treat her body more carefully than they otherwise would and then Hecuba gives a long speech the gods are against me this is terrible so on and so forth especially um and then she discovers the body of her son, comes up on shore. Her son had been murdered. And then she kills the king. And then she turns into a dog who sort of just mm-hmm. howls and howls, expressing her Did you, mourning. The way that she killed him, that seemed like it was some kind of symbol. But I didn't really understand. So she, she claws his eyes out and then like takes his brains out through the eye sockets. That's a very gross image, but it's also like a very unique kind of, like I, I, thought, I was wondering if, I don't know, what do you, what do you make of that image? It's, it's my very, my uh, thought was the sort of poetic justice, right? So this guy Polymester is the, the king of Thrace, right? And she seeks an audience to, with him. She says she has this gold she wished to show him that she had kept for her son and would now give him. The king believed her lusting for gold, right? So taking out his eyes, right? His He lusted for gold with his eyes. Oh, right? I see. She grabbed him, dug fingers into his lying eyes, right? His eyes were lying. I mean, how can eyes lie? That's the first question. Lying eyes, yeah. Um, <laughs> when again, as I brought this up several times, right? I'm reading Dante right now with my students and in purgatory in the circle of the envious, right? They're so... If you're in the circle in purgatory, you get these sort of disciplines that are meant to help you overcome the overcome the vice that you, you know, hobbled you in life. And the envious, right? They walk around with their eyes so shut because during life they were envious of all their neighbor's stuff. So I wouldn't even be surprised if Dante read this and was inspired by inspired in his treatment of the envious by this moment, right? Because the only characteristic we get of the king is that he was lustful for gold. And I think implicit is that. He was lustful for gold, greedy, 
and I think implicit that he was there, he was not a loyal ally to the Trojans as he ought to have been. So that's the sense in which his eyes were lying, I think. Yeah, and I think it's again, I feel like I'm I sense a theme there that I can't quite articulate, but it's the problem for Polyphemus, right, is that he's too ugly to be loved. And that has to do with seeing as well. And he's trying to convince, he essentially is trying to convince Galatea that I'm not as ugly as I appear at first glance. I'm look at, you know, think about, he's trying to reframe his appearance and his possessions. So he doesn't seem like a a monster living in a cave outside of civilization, right? He's trying to say, look past your first impression and see something else. Hmm. Well, like Ulysses is able to maybe, let's say we think that Ajax deserved the armor of Achilles because he did this very, Ulysses is able to reframe what you could clearly see with your own eyes, Ajax doing in the battlefield, which was like being a badass warrior and slaying dudes for 10 years. And through rhetoric, Ulysses is able to like make the Greek commander see something else in those actions, right? Yeah, that's where I was going to go, Adam. And it's interesting in both instances just now, right? You said the language is trying to get them to look past or to see something different, which is metaphorical, right? What we have here is that one sense, the ocular sense, right, the eyes, um, and the other sense, the ears are set against each other, right? And there's a sort of disparity between what your eyes would tell you and then what what is communicated by language, right? And, and the, the competition is over how you see that thing, not literally, but sort of uh, right. morally or something, right? What, how you understand the, the, the thing that you're encountering. And so, right, speech is set against sight or or visual data is set against speech right and and there's put in competition and we see at some points in the case of odysseus right the art of speech right is is able to transfigure right the sight mm-hmm. literally and maybe literally metaphorically even perhaps of these people in the case mm-hmm. of polyphemus he can't pull that off um and it could be because he's just too ugly that there's no amount of speech that could dress him up or alternatively we could say that if he was more skillful, perhaps, if he was more skilled in oratory, he perhaps could pull that off. Mm-hmm. Though I find, I'll just say, I find Polyphemus's speech much more interesting to read than Achilles myself and, and entertaining. U- Ulysses, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I'll No, I, I mean, I did, I did too. Polyphemus is, is rendered like deliberately crudely. The translator does a really good job kind of punning on the bad Latin. So I think, uh, I think like the meter is a little ragged. And, uh, but it, it is, yeah, I think that's right. Another thing I just noticed too is that um, at one point Odysseus is, narr- is identified by the narrator as a liar outright, or where it's when uh, Aeneas sails by, that his his shore is Ithaca is referred to as the kingdom of lying Odysseus. Um, I think that's pretty telling. And I mean, I just say quickly. I mean, I think there is a lot of thinking in this book about sophistry because essentially right the socratic definition of the sophist is one who doesn't care about the truth of things but merely uses language to achieve any end right and the sophist as socrates would present them are the the men who are selling the power of persuasion without regards to the truth of a thing and so i i do think it is fair to say in some way that both ulysses and polyphemus are are trying to be sophistic but Odysseus or Ulysses is better at it yeah and there's always a I mean Ulysses is always such an interesting character when he comes up in poetry right 
because he is because to some degree the, the way that he, he manipulates language is, is like the way that poets manipulate language right and there's something very i mean you know words are not reality right like they're part of reality but it's never going to line up exactly you know i mean obviously we we live in a a time where a lot of people and theorists have said a lot about that but you know, i think going all you know ovid's thinking about that too it seems to me here like what I doing when I describe these myths, when I describe these gods, you know, because if we are operating under the premise that he doesn't take this seriously as a literal account of the history of the world, he must be asking himself similar kinds of questions like, what am I lying? Like, what am I trying to accomplish? Is it wrong to lie? <laughs> like, if, if all words have an element of deception, is, is it better to achieve what you're trying to achieve by using them, you know, to their, their best, in their best ways? Or is it better to use them in as direct as possible there's something kind of charming about that too like all that's all that those kinds of concerns are in play whenever ulysses comes into the picture right and there's not there's certainly not this sort of straightforward christian emphasis on the truth being like the highest value right it's a sort of nietzschean point is that ovid is not condemning which greg has been bringing up in different ways for the last couple episodes uh ovid is not condemning lying outright He's sort of exploring it as a problematic, right? As a problem in the philosophical sense. Yeah, and if we think about like the Aeneid, right? What role Ulysses played in the elite in the Aeneid? What, I think he's referred to as the source of all iniquity or something at some point. He's like this kind of monstrous background presence. He becomes a, a villain. He's, a, he's the villain, you know? And here he's like neither the hero or the villain. He's like, he's taken on some new new kind of role yeah i think it's interesting too yeah man sorry i trying to talk before i knew what i was saying basically odysseus caught up in the questions of moral language in a book that i think has done so much to put morality aside i think that's really interesting like you know the gods are all rapists and murderers the moral authority of the book comes from something like love but we we're fully aware that love is just as bad as it is good or something and so all of a sudden we get a very explicit turn towards truth-telling and falsehood and i don't i think it is pretty clear that odysseus is morally inferior to ajax because he is unaccomplished in some way and that ajax is Right. So, so he couldn't stand alone against Jove. He couldn't stand up like the, the passage describing Ajax and his, you know, his inherent strength. It's just literally lacking in Odysseus. Can I ask generally, Greg or, or anybody else, how do you see, I think this is maybe the central question of the book for me. How do you see Ovid in Metamorphoses positioning himself relative to the questions of morality? Yeah, that's a that's really hard. That's how I've been. I'm trying to think about this too, because it has so many stories that are obviously moral parables, but I can't understand if Ovid, the author, supports the moral parables because he has other stories that are amoral parables, you know, exact lessons and why there's no morality. And it seems like the general premise of metamorphoses is a concept that fundamentally. I, I would say it even undermines concepts, but it seems to undermine morality substantially. 
Well, and for, for clarity of conversation, I'll just say quickly, I think we should talk about, I think amoral, I would define as without reference to morality, not thinking about it. And I, I'm pretty sure that's not what Ovid's up to. That being said, he could be a moral writer in the sense of trying to gird up the piety of his time and maybe modify it in some way, or he could be an anti-moral writer, right? Somebody who's, who's more deconstructionist in his approach. Alex oh, that makes sense. I always thought of amoral as something like moral anarchy, but there's different ways to use it. But I think for the purpose of this conversation, I think amoral could mean right, neither, neither fiercely forward nor fiercely against, but but almost agnostic. But Alex, you had something to say. Uh, amoral, maybe having no does not bear on a, a question of morality. Yeah, that's how I'm thinking of it. Yeah, I think that in that case, in that meaning, definitely this book is not an amoral work. But it, but it, I would almost call it, it, it feels so American in some ways, like we're in this weird post-moral landscape. And this book feels so suitable to that, where all the, all the old gods have been, you know, betrayed and, and people are have this tremendous insecurity of believing in anything. And then trying to cope with still caring about the world, but unable to, you know, a world free of all naivete crushed and is just crushed adam and alex what would you say about ovid's positioning himself vis-a-vis morality well yeah it's really hard to say for the reasons that you have you both have described but there are some things that are always treated as bad right and like greed and envy it seems to me are always treated as bad i don't think they're examples of, of that being of those being morally ambiguous states I mean, the house of envy is obviously associated with death yeah. in some real way. So certainly there's a, there's a sense that in which there, there's an extreme, extreme skepticism about any kind of transcendent moral signifier, right? Partially, I think, because of what Greg was saying, that we live, we're, in a, we're in a universe of constant transformation, and that includes, yeah, concepts themselves, you know? And so I'm not trying to make those two things line up because there do seem to be positive and negative values, but they don't seem to be consistent or coherent in a way that seems like morality to me. Two stories in Metamorphoses that seem particularly morally charged, or at least they were framed as a, a moral tale, were the stories about incest. You had Biblis, which is incest between siblings, but the one I'm thinking about now is is the the father and daughter incest tale. It seems like Ovid wants to say this sort of act in general is immoral. The incestuous love between a father and his daughter that is wrong. But then we were looking at how the love child then went on to be the progenitor of this line that was historically important and how Venus was at both ends of this of this line and then that made me think of another interesting story from from Genesis that was uh was it Judah Judah and Tamar <laughs> from Genesis where Tamar was like the wife uh that was supposed to be given to one of Judah's sons who was then killed and then he gives it to Onan and 
then Judah is lamenting because his sons are dead. And then Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute and Judah goes into her. Well, that line from Judah and Tamar's child, that gets us to King David. So it's this act that's culturally not a good thing, but the the line, the progeny leads up to this historically important story. And it, it's always a question that it's entirely puzzling. I'm supposed to not do this, but then if I did, somewhere along the line will be some important historical figure. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously the, the big difference, right, is that if you are operating in a Hebrew context, you can say God brought something good out of the sin. Whereas in the Ovidian context, there's no clear way to say that or even to say what that would even mean. I mean, sin itself yeah, we actually is not have... a category in, in Ovid, right? Yeah. I'm wondering, I don't know what to make of it. <laughs> I'm wondering, Adam, you said there's no concept of sin in Ovid. It doesn't seem like anyone is ever transformed because of a virtue or virtuous act, except that peasant couple in the woods, right? That might be the one exception. Seems like the general rule is that if you are transformed into something, it's either because you did something like sin or somebody else did something like sin against you. There was some like the, the universe is such that if you push against the order in such a way, it will adapt and transform to to prevent something from unfolding. There's Halkion. There also just like been happenstance transformations to it. I don't know if um the transformation of the this I don't know if this is bad or good, but the who's the guy who gets his statue transformed? Pygmalion. Pygmalion, yeah. I feel like there's a lot of transformations not they're definitely not the majority it does seem like the majority are some kind of trait forces one into a highly desirable a highly undesirable situation instead of death which seems like the logical result there's a transformation but there are some exemption exemptions exemptions but couldn't you greg so a, a thought on pygmalion and then i want to make a general observation couldn't you greg say something like Pygmalion fell into an unnatural love, right? A human man who refused human women was loving his statue that he created. And so the cosmos or whatever intervened to make it uh, an appropriate love, right? And then you have the girl who was raised as a boy and then is turned into a boy so that the love can happen, right? There's like a, and so I think the general, right? We've talked so much about Ovid's, I think rightfully, we've talked so much about Ovid's pessimism but there is a sense, too, that when things are devolving into a really terrible situation, the universe intervenes and makes a transformation to make that situation slightly less terrible. Right. So instead of being yeah, I definitely agree with that instead of being the, the daughter who's in love with her father and is, you know, would end in death or something. Right. You become a bubbling brook that people can enjoy. Right. A natural element that's arguably in and of itself uh, a good aspect of the material world. Yeah, it's almost like the transformations are euphemisms where it's it's like, you know, that awful guy who, you know, raped that woman in the house for decades and cut out her, her tongue and all that stuff. And then she goes and feeds him his children. It's weird, though, because he tells the whole story and then he like euphemistically and they all became birds. You know, <laughs> it's, it's like, 
I don't know what to do with that, but it does feel like this this like gentling over the the harshness of the world. That that Greg is like the sort of Girardian reading of myth, is that the transformations are covering real real violence for, from a Girardian perspective, right? If we can for the myths to be useful, our own violence can't be on full display in them. For them to be socially useful, we need to obscure our own violence to a degree. That would be the sort of Girardian reading. Well, it's pretty hard to make the uh, one that Greg just mentioned fit with that. It's already pretty violent uh-huh. in the first place. That's but, the, but the endings, right? The, yeah. the metamorphoses. There's a slight uplift at the end. But I mean, that, you know, what if, what is even left to obscure when, when the literal story is this woman is mutilated and raped for years and then she has revenge boils mm-hmm. the man's children and then feeds them then yeah it's it's, it's weird because it but but it still has that I, I i'm really trying out the word but i think euphemism gets kind of close to really what i'm getting at where it's like and the last note is decent you know and they and, and there's just something so childlike about they all become birds or i th- i think there's something to that greg and i and i sort of want to double down on my point because if we're going to think about it this way, it really changes a lot of our reading up to this point, right? Because over and over we were saying Ovid was the most, Ovid is extremely pessimistic, but if we're saying he's, the way he's imagining the universe, right, is he is giving these quasi-redemptive endings through transformation, right? He's giving these quasi-redemptive endings to these horrible tales that makes him not only optimistic, but naively so right? Almost a romantic, like, yeah, rape is horrible, but it will end in these, these transformations that people isn't quite the right word, fill the world with all of these objects, rivers and stags and all of these things that we like. I think that was sort of the knock against him for a long time. I mean, that was why he was considered a lesser poet than um, or Homer or uh, mm. Virgil. I just can't the- see him. I can't, I can't understand that reading. Like I can't read the book and think, yeah, Ovid doesn't know what he's doing. He's just he's just buttering over these atrocities, you know, because I just don't see that's how yeah, I can see why people would read it that way. But I can only see it being read that way if you're in a culture that doesn't think critically about ultraviolence. And I can't see Ovid not doing that. Well, and in terms of genre, right, the question is, is he a comic or a tragic writer? Right. And um, he's not either obviously but there is the comic tendency to again assuming that a transformation is a, is a quasi-redemptive ending at least often that that would put him closer to the comic camp yeah i agree it's like a tr- it's like a comedy where the entire tragedy plays out in the middle there's no cutting away you go through the whole tragedy and then you just do a little jig at the end and everyone walks off stage <laughs> that well, makes it seem like the endings are actually ironic and not like the irony is that this doesn't redeem anything and if you think it does then you're you're you've been duped when i think that i so this may be my last word i think I've, I've said my piece but i think that's what's so hard about understanding his relationship to morality is that he is so variable and so very hard to read tonally speaking like even, you know, I think it's at the beginning of the Biblis story, either the Biblis story or the other incest story. Like this is a story about why daughters should not uh, desire too much what they ought not to desire. And I read that and I go, Ovid, how do you want, how do you want me to read this? <laughs> like, are you being totally ironic and satirical here? Are you being a smart ass or are you, 
being a straightforward moralist or something in between. And, and there's just so many moments like that where I can't tell tonally how he wants me to read what appear to be moral judgments or statements, which means that, right, he's definitely not amoral or he's definitely not indifferent to moral questions, but he's either fiercely moral or fiercely anti-moral or he vacillates between the two. And I feel like I've sort of been on this merry-go-round, you know, for the last 13 books trying to figure that out. Yeah, I, th- I think that's, I think that merry-go-round is, like, in some ways, is the most complex book, one of the most complex books I've ever read because it's so hard to get any sense of the author. You know, like, like I feel, one of the things that I keep wanting to resort in is something like you do with, with, the, with the Odyssey or with Homer, where it's like, oh, this is multiple authors forming one body of work. Um, and it, this work feels more obviously written by multiple people than the Iliad does, even though this is obviously one person. And I think the only refuge I have in that is something like Ovid is completely committed to uh, not documenting the tradition because he's totally happy to change it. But, but it seems like he's committed to, it'd be like me telling a story of every weird childhood story that I learned as a kid and being utterly faithful, not to the stories, but to the act of telling them. Like, it seems incredibly important to him that he redo the whole tradition. Everything's gotta be there. You gotta have the Odyssey. You gotta have the Aeneid. You gotta have all of this. But now Ovid's in charge, but not so much in charge that these stories, you know, it seems like something just puts them in just as he heard them or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting way to put it because it's like, then the God in question is the God of the, the story, the inheritance of stories or something. And it's almost like he's deferring the moral questions to the stories themselves. Right. But that's still, that's, I mean, I think that's an interesting premise, but it's hard to square with the occasional aside. Like this is the story of Biblis is the story of why a girl shouldn't desire what she ought not to desire. But maybe that's, maybe that's the way he heard the story. Right. That's maybe that's the way to square that. I don't know. I mean, it literally, it reminds me of like, like the story of Biblis reminds me of like schools, like, like if you go to like the, the like, don't do drugs or don't like, don't dr- drink and drive things that high schoolers go to. It's like, don't drink and drive. And it's like 40 minutes of watching car right. wrecks. This is and people. a story that like, you shouldn't drink and drive. But it's like yeah. Horrifying and then you just go into this whole thing. You're like, yeah. oh my God. <laughs> you know, and it's like, don't drink and drive kids. Yeah. Or like, yeah, women good. shouldn't want too much stuff or, or they'll yeah. have sex with their father. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. I just, I just, I, I can't see him as committed to that kind of moral naivete just because this, this work feels too complicated to be written with someone by someone with that with that attitude but i do think he's committed to depicting that moral naivete you know and, and some of the stories are so saccharine too that i just think that that he wants like you know i'm almost like thinking of him as some kind of like super urban ironist who wants to portray romanness as much as possible so he grabs this frame of metamorphosis. He grabs this absurd frame that the entire tradition of storytelling can be tied together one to another seamlessly. Like that, you know, that's one of the greatest absurdities so far is that we're 14 books in or 13 books in and every story is connected to the previous and this, this like dolphin-like. I mean, that's probably the reason why it feels so modern to us because it's like the background presence is someone who wants to have 
who wants to live in a coherent moral universe but can't commit to one like can't actually believe in one so you're sort of like in that loop where you're like trying to find the ground and the ground is shifting you're trying to find the ground and the ground is shifting is that a, is that a good place to stop the search for today that sounds good Thank you for joining us on our quixotic quest for the key to all mythologies. Please join us next week as we read book 14, the penultimate book of Ovid's Metamorphosis and discuss it together vigorously. Good night. Vigorously. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> Planning to discuss it lackadaisically. All right. Nonchalantly. Nonchalant discussion. <laughs>